Time now for the quote of the week. Well, I'm hoping through this program or maybe some other avenue, you've become familiar with the work of Thomas Sowell, one of the English-speaking world's best-known economists. He was born in South Carolina, brought up in poverty in Harlem. I mean, the author of so many books. I've read many, many of them. And a National Humanities Medal recipient for innovative scholarship, which incorporated history, economics, and political science. thing I love, though, also, is that he's such a gifted communicator. I can't tell you how many times I sit back and go, I wish I could say something that eloquent. Which brings me to today's example, and it's controversial. I mean, but it would be difficult not to notice how many times over the last several years, politicians try to atone for the sins of the past by making an official apology. I mean, the list is a long one. And some definitely more poignant than others. But of note, while at the same time, we make excuses for people's actions today, or as Professor Sowell puts it in quotes, have we reached the ultimate stage of absurdity where some people are held responsible for things that happened before they were born, while other people are not held responsible for what they themselves are doing today? My quote of the week. Time now for this week's shocking stat. You know, one of the things that's been a big surprise when you look at the economic numbers is how many people are unemployed, but then you see how many job openings there are. Stories of businesses not being able to find people to work are common. Maybe the mismatch could be uh, that they're not in the same geographical location. So one part of the country has got a big uh, unemployment problem. The other card has a big demand. So that could be one reason. There Maybe there's a skill mismatch. But one that most economists are talking about right now is that businesses can't compete with the level of government assistance. Now, we had this problem in Canada. I remember looking at all the help wanted signs early on in the pandemic, like a second quarter of last year. Then you figure it out. Well, CERB benefits represented about $12.50 an hour. That means, really, if you're even paid $20 an hour, you are working for next to nothing after you pay work-related expenses. This week, by the way, a morning consult poll in the U.S. found that 1.8 million workers have turned down jobs citing generous unemployment benefits. Again, similar to what happens in Canada. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business found that 27% 27 of laid-off workers didn't want to come back to work when offered the opportunity because of receiving CERB benefits. This is all the background for my shocking stat of the week. And it is a shocker. This is, excuse me. This is Illinois, where again the unemployment raise, uh, rate rose above the national average, about seven point two percent. But the average worker in Illinois earns fifty five thousand seven hundred seventy dollars a year. Here's the shocking part: if the worker instead chooses to stay home, he or she could collect fifty one thousand six hundred twenty seven in related pandemic related unemployment benefits. As a letter from the Illinois Chamber of Commerce wrote to the governor there, the problem is workers cannot compete, uh, employers can't compete with the approximate $35 per hour that unemployed workers have received over the last four months as a result of enhanced UI benefits and tax credits and stimulus payments. The state also exacerbated the problem. It used to be that you had to post a resume on the state's job site. Well, they eliminated that. So now what you've got is this. Employers have posted over 120,000 help-wanted ads on the government site. Only 38,000 people have posted their resumes. But come on, that is pretty shocking. Average worker earns about 56,000 a year. 
And if you choose instead to stay home, you collect about 52000 a year. That's a shock. It's the old, if you pay some people, or if you pay people not to work, well, some won't. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. Well, as usual, a little controversial. Censorship is arguably, I think, one of the biggest issues in this country today, and it's manifesting in so many ways. I mean, it's a fundamental, maybe the fundamental right is free speech. But some people are losing their job for simply stating an opinion that's contrary to the popular narrative of the day. Then you got right through to the banning of Donald Trump, arguably the most powerful politician in the world, from Twitter and Facebook. And the pandemic has furthered the censorship issue. This is really important. With the Biden administration admitting to working with social media giants like Facebook to censor specific COVID-related content that they deem inaccurate. Well, critics will argue that government working hand-in-hand with social media giants has frightening potential of more censorship on different issues to come. And I think their fears have been widely validated when you start looking at the content of Bill C-36 in Canada, which would amend the criminal code. Are you ready for this? To permit house arrest or electronic monitoring for any net internet user suspected on a reasonable ground of thinking they might commit an offense motivated by bias, prejudice, or hate. Come on, suspected? Might? As the Ontario Civil Liberties Association states, criminal conduct in this case is speech in which no actual harm to any specific person needs to be proven by the state. That's approved speech they're talking about. But what about Facebook and other social media sites censoring what's considered to be inaccurate COVID-related information? I mean, it's part of a bigger question that comes down to what's the best way to combat misinformation? Is it through censorship or through, as one of the English-speaking world's most respected free speech advocates, Jonathan Rouse states, the best way to fight misinformation and hate is through open dialogue, which then exposes the fallacies. You know what? That used to be one of the fundamental differences between democracies and totalitarian regimes. Totalitarian regimes are afraid of free speech. But how a democracy used to handle it is, let's get the dialogue going. Let's have more information. Well, that seems to be uh, under threat right now. And even leaving aside the right to free speech, it's important to note how often the consensus is wrong. Look at the effort to shut down any talk that COVID started with uh, the virology lab in Wuhan. Facebook actually banned any mention of it. It's only when the Biden White House was forced to acknowledge the possibility that they rescind the ban. If we went back further, spring of last year, White House Chief Medical Advisor Anthony Fauci stated unequivocally that, in quotes, the typical mask you buy in the drugstore is not really effective in keeping out the virus, end of quote. Well, come on. If you had disagreed, said, no, masks are incredibly important barrier to contracting the virus. Well, Facebook and the Biden administration would have censored you. There's been similar about face when it comes to many other aspects. I'll give you an example. Contracting SARS-CoV-2 from surfaces. Well, now the Center for Disease Control says there's less than a 1 in 10,000 chance, keyword being less, i.e. next to impossible. But if you said that last July, Facebook would have censored you. So many other examples in healthcare and other subjects where the consensus proved to be wrong. I'll give you one of my, just one of my favorite examples. Early 1980s, Robert, Robin Warren and Barry Marshall of Australia isolated the bacteria Helicobacter pylori, not bad for pronunciation, from patients with, uh, with ulcer disease. 
They concluded that the bacteria was the cause of duodenal ulcers. Well, at the time, in quotes, every medical professional knew that's not the case. They were caused by stress, diet, and other factors. It's an incredible story. They were pilloried for this. In 1984, frustrated by the lack of acceptance of the discovery, couldn't even get research grants to fund this further. So, unbeknownst to anyone, Marshall decided to infect himself with the bacteria. And yes, he became severely ill. He then treated himself with antibiotics and fully recovered. But it took 20 more years for widespread acceptance of his findings by the medical establishment. And in 2005, Warren and Marshall were awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine for their discovery. As I said, it ultimately comes down to free speech. And the best way to combat misinformation and hate, is it through open dialogue, which then exposes the fallacy, or is it censorship? And with one final caveat, beware the consensus. Dr. Arnold Aberman, former dean of the University of Toronto Medical School, states, be very suspicious of those who want to cut off debate with, this is against settled science. Appealing to authority is a sign of weakness, not strength, end of quote. 